1 Samuel, we'll read a couple chapters here, just chapters 9 and 10, and uh, we'll look at a, uh, a few points. Should I get Michelle to come read it or no? It's a lot to read. All right, 1 Samuel 9. If you weren't aware, before in chapter 8, Israel asked for a king. And chapter 8 ends kind of like with a, you know, an ominous tone. Samuel says to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Right? It's not like positive. It's kind of like what you're asking for is, is not God's will. But God in many ways is going to give them what they've asked for. All right? uh, so we'll explore that concept here. Start, starting in, in, in chapter 9, though, verse 1, it says, There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, right, or a man of valor, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome as a young man as could be found anywhere on Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on to the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed to the ter territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they, when they reached the district of Zeus, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take them to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look, he, he said, I have a quarter of shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire God, they would say, come, let's go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you, hurry now. He has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at a high place. As soon, as, as soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people, will begin eating until, the people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now, you should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel, 
And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh which was on, with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was a set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to this town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of the house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of town, town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servants to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at, Zel, uh, at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which will you accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to the sacrifice, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave, Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? The man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for donkeys, he said. But when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan. Mechu's clan was taken. Finally, Saul's son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any, any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. 
Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Amen. You got all that? Awesome. We will get some points out of it. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at some of the elements of the story here. Uh, Father, we, uh, we do thank you. We, we thank you, you know, even, even for, you know, for, for King Saul. And, you know, obviously in the coming weeks, God, we're going to learn so much from him, uh, both positively and negatively, God. God, we pray that you guard our hearts and minds from, you know, the, the pride and contempt, the, the temptation to look at another and... and and think that we can't be the same way, Father. We pray, God, that you help us, God, to, uh, to, to ever remain small in our own eyes and to understand just the depth of your power and your sovereignty over all things, God. Pray you be with us now, God. Help us to, to be attentive to your spirit, God, working on our hearts and opening our eyes to help us to understand you and ourselves with so much greater clarity, God. Again, we thank you. We ask Christ's name. Amen. Look, it is an interesting passage uh, in that it's a little bit of a dry passage, right? Uh, you know, and it, it is, it's kind of in the middle of a, you know, a section here where Saul is being established as king. You know, we were reading this earlier in the week, Michelle and I, and, uh, you know, it, it does read, you know, Michelle made the point that it, it is, in many ways, it, it, on face value, reads as history, right? And, and you see... Uh, you know, God working to establish Saul as king. You know, first and foremost in, in these sections, uh, the first part of chapter 9, God in some sense is convincing Samuel that Saul is going to be the man. Right? Uh, after that, Saul needs some convic- convincing that he's the man. Uh, and that's what happens in, in chapter 9, 18, you know, verse 18, all the way into chapter 10. Uh, and then lastly, Israel as a whole is convinced uh, in, uh, in, in chapter 10 all the way into chapter 11. And we'll look at chapter 11 next week. But, but the overarching structure here is that's what God is doing, right? Uh, God doesn't agree with Israel's request, but God is going to give Israel what they're asking for, right? And that's kind of an interesting thing. Now, God has warned them, as we talked about, when you enter the land and life gets good and you look at the nations around you, don't, don't do this. Don't ask for a king, right? Be a light. You're meant, they're meant to be different, not assimilate into the world. But nonetheless, they want to assimilate, and so God gives them what they're asking for, and that's King Saul, right? And it's an interesting thing because it really does, uh, you know, present, I don't know, some challenges to us in many ways, right? How do we, how do we look at the events that unfold here, right? Uh, you know, and there are some various themes, you know, <laughs> Uh, one of the big ones is, is Saul's incompetence, right? Saul's incompetence. It starts here in these, uh, in these chapters, and it's going to continue, right? Uh, you know, Saul is looking after donkeys. Uh, I talked about this last week. There is an element of humor that God is trying to put, you know, into the text there to help us to see, right? Uh, donkeys are notorious for being uh, stubborn uh, and relatively stupid animals, uh, and Israel, uh, their leaders are repeatedly put before the, the, you know, the, the, the people as, as shepherds of sheep. And here you have Saul, son of Kish, uh, really a, a lousy donkey shepherd. Right? 
Uh, we know that, right? Samuel, you know, will tell him there in, in chapter 20 that, you know, as for the donkeys, you lost. Hence the reason why his dad sent Saul out to look for the donkeys, right? Uh, Saul has lost the donkeys, and God, tend, you know, and Saul's father says, hey, you know, basically like a good father, you lost him, you find him, right? And, and Saul goes wandering all over the place. I mean, literally all over the place. You know, geographically, none of those places mean anything to us that are there in verse 4. Uh, but there is a common thread that strings that entire section together and, or that entire verse together, right? Uh, they did not find them. You see that in the, on the slide there? Uh, the, donkey, the donkeys were not there, and they did not find them. It's this idea that, that he's lost them, and he's incompetent in even retrieving them, all right, as, they, as he wanders everywhere. Uh, and as I said, this is the, the, the first examples of many. Right? We maybe picked it up as, as we read the text together, uh, that later on, uh, after Saul has, has had the entire interaction with Samuel, uh, Saul's you know, family asks him, what did Samuel say? And Saul lies. And we're going to talk a little bit about more what's probably going on in Saul's heart and why he does that, but that's not a good sign. Right? Uh, you know, there's something going on in Saul's heart. And we can often look at this section and, and maybe, you know, and I think I've probably made the, the mistake of this in the past of zeroing in on it. Saul's incompetence. But I think that's probably not the central thing, right? Because there's an interesting thing that happens, right? As Saul goes there, uh, there is a lot of series of, of that appear on face value as, uh, as, as coincidence, right? You know, verses 11 to 12, as they're going up the hill to the town, they meet some young women they are coming out. Uh, they, you know, they ask the women, is the seer here? He is, you know, he's, he's just ahead of you, hurry now. He's just come up to town today. Uh, it's this idea that, man, it's, it's, from their perspective, this is lucky, right? It's not like Saul is super uh, spiritual man. He doesn't even know about Samuel. The idea of going to visit Samuel doesn't originate, originate in Saul. It originates in Saul's servant, right? But, but you know, these, 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 uh, the, uh, women that are going down to get water, they see, look, hey, this is, this is a bit of a, a coincidence, right? Verse 14, they went up to the town, and as they were entering, there was Samuel coming toward them on his, on his way up to a high place. Uh, man, events just seeming to come together, right? But as Samuel comes on the scene and as God sheds some light, we see probably what I think is the, the central theme that we're meant to see in this text. Right? Verses 15 to 17 break from the narrative and say, and give us some background, right? And this is now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. My, about. He will govern my people. And so you have a, a series of interesting things here. Right? Like I said, the, the, the women, in some sense, I think re represent uh, you know, maybe the skeptical voice in our own heart uh, or the general perspective of the world. And that's just, you know, sometimes things you know, work out in your life and that's just sheer luck. But the reality is, as the story goes on, especially in those verses 15 to 17, we're clued in on this reality that everything that's unfolding right now in Saul's life and in Israel's life is done by God. And when you stop and you think about this, you know, I mean, how, how did God get, get Saul there? Through his own incompetence. That God is working through, through someone who's not even a suitable tool, right, as a leader, and, he, and, he, and he's using him and bringing him to various places and arranging events 
uh, way beyond his concept of awareness, right? And, 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 it, and it begins to introduce to us a theme that in the next chapter, in chapter 10, unfolds even more, right? That despite Saul's confidence in the appearance that it's all happening purely by coincidence, God's providence is at work. And you look, uh, you know, here's a good quote on that idea, right? Beneath the surface of even seemingly insignificant human decisions and events, an unseen and uncontrollable power is at work that can be neither explained nor thwarted. Right? And as, uh, you know, as I said, when you go on and you look at chapter 10, and chapter 10 has all these events uh, that unfold. And some, you know, it's one of those chapters that as you read it, uh, a lot of times everyone's eyes kind of glaze over. Like, what is going on here? Right? And Samuel gives you know, Saul these series of events. Right? When you leave me today, you're going to meet two men near Rachel's tomb. And then he talks to them about when you go up uh, you know, t- near the great tree of Tabor, you're going to meet three men, and they're going to, you know, one's going to be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, another a skin of wine, and we're thinking, what in the world is going on here? Uh, and after that, you're going to go to Gibeah, and, and as you pro- approach that town, there's going to be a pr- procession of prophets, and then as that procession of prophets gets close to you, man, the Spirit of God's going to come on you, as he did in all the other judges, as you read the book of Judges, uh, and God's going to take control of your life, and, and you're going to join in with them. Uh, you know, and in chapter 10, verse 9, you see as Saul turned to leave, Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all those signs were fulfilled. And you think, well, what is God doing? What is God doing with this guy? What is God doing with this donkey herder? Uh, you know, and what, 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 is, what is he trying to tell us? You know, and I think what, what God is, you know, through Samuel is trying to help Saul see is, is this concept of God's providence. And this, this, this doctrine, this, this concept, this idea that God is in control of all things. Even, our, even in the midst of our great incompetence, God is in control. And God is arranging and orchestrating and accomplishing his will. Is the central theme, really, that's going to dominate the rest of the book. Because you're going to get flawed characters. And as we unpack Saul, we're going to see Saul is a deeply flawed man. All right? And as we look at David, and we're going to think, man, okay, David, fantastic, slays Goliath. Everything he does is great. Uh, you know, but yeah, there's some great things. But as you get to know David, what do you discover? Deeply flawed man. And the Old Testament is great about this because our world is really bad at this. Right? Our world has, has zero tolerance for error. Make a mistake, instant punishment, canceled. Make a mistake, instant punishment, canceled. Right? And it ha- you know, the world has this viewpoint of people that, 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 that perfection is possible. Whereas the Old Testament is very clear, and the New Testament as well, and that's the reality that, man, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. We're all deeply flawed. We all have character weaknesses and flaws that that can greatly hinder us. But despite all that, God's providence holds steadfast. And what we'll find as we unpack the rest of of 1 Samuel is is really the chief difference between Saul and David is not bad guy, good guy. It's one remains convinced that they're small in their own eyes. And therefore then relies and trusts in God's overarching sovereignty and control, his providence. Whereas the other, 
though he knows he's flawed, begins to lose grip with that reality, and fear begins to dominate him. Fear begins to control him. And in his fear, he tries to control others. And in his fear, insecurity runs you know, rampant in his heart and destroys his relationships. But the overarching thing that, 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 that the major characters for the rest of the book will wrestle with is, is God in control? Is his providence real or is it not? Are the things that happen in our lives merely chance and coincidence or is God in control? And this is a huge lesson for us. Because we can very easily, uh, you know, sit here on a, on, a, on a Sunday and, man, sing songs to God and, and, and look at his word, but then go out and functional, function day in and day out uh, in the decisions and the events that unfold in our life. And, and, we, and we can end up functioning really just like materialists who think, honestly, you know, God is not at work. God's not doing anything. God's not orchestrating anything. He's, a, he's, he's sitting back and just letting everything unfold uh, completely independent of him. But these chapters are trying to help Saul to grasp this concept of, you know what, you thought you were chasing donkeys? No, God was getting you to meet Samuel. You think you, you, you have control? No, no, God is in control here. God has a purpose and he has a plan. There's so many scriptures throughout the Bible that teach us this, right? Hebrews 1.3 says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Romans 8, one we looked at when we studied out Romans, right? This idea that, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. You know, Job 37, talking about the clouds, that is direction they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. One we're familiar with because we study the Bible with, with people, uh, you know, to, to help them understand God's at work. And we share the scripture, Acts 17, 26, this idea that God has marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of lands, that God has arranged for you to be where you are with a providential purpose. Right? Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord, Lord works out everything to his proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. And Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. You know, throughout the Bible, the scriptures try to remind us of this. That God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, is in control of all things. It tries to hammer into us so many different ways from this idea of, you know what, no matter what comes your way, like in Romans 8, if you love God, God can use that and will use that for your good. And even the weather patterns, the time, the nation boundaries, even the wicked, and even something as small and as, as insignificant as a sparrow, all of that falls under God's sovereign control, his providence. And it's one of these things, guys, we hear a lot, but do we really believe it? Does our daily life reflect a belief that God is in control? Does how we react to whatever comes our way reveal that inner faith? Because like I said, Saul's uh, you know, wrestling with this uh, you know, is, is, um, you know, determines his rise and fall as a king, right? We'll skip the quote, right? You know, but you look at how this unfolds, right? 
We only have one point today if you're sweating and thinking, my goodness, that's a long introduction, Sam, right? We're talking about the providence. Pansy, you look relieved, right? Uh, that's good, right? But, but, you know, we have these two competing concepts, right? You know, our, the, the reality of our incompetence and the reality of God's providence. As I said earlier, Saul gets this at this moment. If you're familiar with the book of First uh, Samuel, you know this verse will come back and haunt Saul later. This is where Saul first comes on the scene, again, having known he lost the donkeys and couldn't find the donkeys. And Samuel tells him, hey, God's got great plans for you, Saul. And this is, this is Saul's response. But I am, am I not a Benjamite for the smallest tribe of Israel? It is not my clan, the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul is, as Samuel will later remind him, at that moment, small in his own eyes. He understands that, you know what? He's incompetent. And when we study the Bible and we look at something like sin, what do we realize? We're incompetent. And some of us are convinced of that before we ever even sit down and study the Bible because we've made a huge mess of our lives, right? But it, we have that posture of humility before God, right? Now, as I said, chapters 9 and 10, one of the big things God is trying to help Saul to grasp, though, is, you know what? Yeah, you're incompetent and you think you're chasing after donkeys, but God is arranging all those various uh, you know, variables in your life to accomplish his will and to make you a suitable tool that he can use. Right? And so Saul has a choice as life moves forward for him that, that if he trusts in himself and his incompetence, what will flow out of, his, out of his heart is insecurity and fear. Like I said, even as this story begins to unpack and God is trying to help Saul to grasp the idea that, that, that God has providential control over all things, there are warning flags that come up. Right? I mentioned the one earlier in chapter 10, 14 to 16, when Saul's uncle asks him, hey, what has Samuel said? Because everyone knew a king was on the horizon, right? There was anticipation in Israel. They knew they had asked. All the elders had got together. They knew Samuel had sent them home. Uh, you know, I mean, there was, there was probably a buzz in Israel. And, 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 okay, Saul, you interacted with Samuel. What did he say? Saul lies. Which is a funny thing to lie about, isn't it? Especially considering everything that transpired before that. A series of events that, man, on the face value seem coincidence, but, man, you... God told you it was going to unfold before your eyes. But, but insecurity takes root in Saul's heart. He's afraid. And in his fear, he lies. There's another ominous verse there in, in, in our text in verse 8. Right? So Samuel tells Saul, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. After he gives him all the other series of events to prove God's providence, he says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Will, will Saul wait? Will he wait for Samuel? Again, if you know the text, you know what, what, what takes root in his heart? Fear. What does he do out of fear? He disobeys God. You know, and again, it's a, it's a choice. Okay, Saul, you're convinced that you're incompetent, but are you going to trust in, in yourself or are you going to trust in God who's providentially in control of all things? Because Saul does have moments where he does trust in God, 
Right? We'll look at one next week, and it's a great moment for Saul. In chapter 11, you know, as, as he you know, heroically and, and bravely goes and rescues God's people. And it's not you know, insecurity and fear paralyzing him. It's, just, it's, it's confidence. It's decisiveness. Because he's operating in a realm of faith, because he's trusting in God. That God has put him in that position to accomplish this task. And so Saul has great courage, uh, and he's willing to go out into battle and save the Israelites. But when you think about Saul, guys, and one of the scariest things about Saul is the reality that he has glimpses of his life and his faith being in God's providence, but the vast majority of his life the years, the decades he'll spend hunting David down is all fueled by that insecurity and that fear. And insecurity is such a difficult thing. It's such a difficult thing to, to, to uh, identify in our hearts because it's, also, it's, it's often confused with humility. Right? And I often talk about this idea that, man, you've got to see pride on the spectrum. Right? There's arrogance, and that's that, that overt overconfidence in self. Right? But on the other end of that spectrum is insecurity. Right? And insecurity you know, is, you know, uh, is, is, again, self-focused, self-consumed, but it tends to dwell on our failures and our mistakes. But the reason it falls onto that pride spectrum is because ultimately it turns your gaze inward. It turns your, 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 your faith, your trust into yourself. It doesn't focus you on God. It doesn't center you on God. It doesn't base your, your confidence to, 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 to make decisions and live life on God. It's on yourself. And as Saul does that, man, it destroys his life unravels him as Israel's first king. And it rings true the very, the very thing that, that, that we started with, this idea that Israel asked for like a king in the world, and God gives them a king like the world. Outwardly impressive, but inwardly in his heart, gripped by pride. Consumed by insecurity. And I encourage you, you know, as you go about your life this week, and you go about your day, uh, you know, it, you're faced with a million choices. And those choices, you know, I think on, on, on the most conscious level that we think a lot of times, you know, in terms of, you know, reactionary, is this balance between am I going to live by faith or fear? And sometimes we just try to muster up, you know, some fake courage to get over on the side of faith rather than fear. But we've got to think deeper about what it's revealing. And what fear in our hearts reveals is that we're not trusting in God. We're trusting in ourselves, And that's why we know what God says, but we choose to do this. Because at the deepest level, we don't really believe. You know, Jordan Peterson pokes at this idea, you know, we... We, we, we only really know what our beliefs are when you look at your actions. You can say you can believe all you want, but when you disobey God, you actually reveal that you, you don't really believe 
that God is God. You believe that self is God. And that's why we follow self. And I encourage you to think deeper about it. When that fear comes up in your heart, man, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to center your, your faith back on God. And when in your fear you try to control the situation uh, and, and, and try to orchestrate and manipulate uh, you know, the various variables rather than simply obeying God and trusting God. It's a choice. We've got to wrestle with our hearts and not assume it's faith, but man, follow the fear in some sense into your heart and recenter your faith on God. Amen? Because Saul's going to have tremendous victories, but ultimately his downfall will be determined by his failure to grasp this truth. And all the heroes we love in the Bible, they're heroes, honestly, not because their characters are, are morally upright. They're deeply flawed moral characters. But they have this perspective that, you know what? No matter what I see, God is in charge. God is in control. And if, man, I align myself with God, man, put it in that providential river of what God has accomplished in this world, then, man, life is life to the full. And life is good. And that's a challenge for us as God's people to follow after those who have come before us, like David, who put their trust in God. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one final song. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you. We thank you that you have the, the, the knowledge and the wisdom and the power to, to not just interrupt life with miracles, but to orchestrate billions and trillions of variables to accomplish your will, Father. God, we know that, that each one of us can look at our own lives and see how you have done that. How you've taken even our own sin and used it in a crazy way to bring about our own salvation. And Father, we know that, that, that you have the ability to work and you have the, the knowledge and the power to accomplish your will. Father, we pray that you help us, God. Help us to be a people that, that truly put our faith in you, God. To not be governed by fear. To not buy into just a materialistic perspective of luck or coincidence. But to really look, you know, open up the eyes of our hearts and look at life and see your providential hand at work, Father. And to allow the, 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 those, uh, those moments to, to, to be things that fuel a deeper and deeper faith in you, God, and in you alone. God, we pray that you be with us, God, as we, as we unpack Samuel in the months ahead, God. And as we look at Saul and, and the downfall, the insecurity and fear and ultimately just faith in self of what that produces, God, we, we pray you help us, God. Help us to imitate, you know, David. And help us to imitate ultimately your son who, who chose, you know, to, to honor your will not his own. To trust in you and that, that your plan, though, though, no matter how absurd it may look in the world's eyes, God, if it is your will, it's going to accomplish your will. And that it's worthy of us putting our faith in God. Help us in this, God. Help us to, to, to see with greater clarity, God, what, where our faith really resides. Again, we thank you and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
Awesome. Let's all stand to sit together and sing Take the Lord with You.